Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School. The school welcomes artists from around the world to join the five-day virtual intercession drawing marathon entitled Drawing on Your Past the Mind's Eye with Graham Nixon and Guests. It's held from Thursday, March 23rd to Monday, March 27th. It's rigorous and immersive. The Studio School's legendary marathons present an extensive range of art-making strategies, comprehensive critiques, and inspirational discussions. Expansive first-hand discoveries in marathons propel artists to relate to drawing, painting, and sculpture as direct methodologies for understanding their experience in the world, the profound impact of which continues far beyond each marathon's conclusion. Visit nyss.org to apply today. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden Artist Colors makes the best acrylics, Williamsburg oils, and core watercolors. And you can find them in your local art store or online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Fulcrum makes amazing coffee. You can head over to their website at fulcrumcoffee.com and check out their subscriptions. They have an amazing variety that you could choose from and have coffee delivered to your house every month. Everything from light roast subscription to espresso to all brands, single origin. They even have a sunset subscription, a jazz alley night subscription. It's a really cool curated coffee experience that can be delivered to your door. And you can get a discount by adding the code ALFREDSTUDIO whenever you check out from the website. Fulcrum Coffee Roasters from Seattle, check them out. Anna Ortiz is a Mexican-American painter living in Brooklyn, New York. She received her BA and DFA from Tufts University and the School of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. She earned an MFA in painting from the Tyler School of Art. She recently concluded her solo exhibition, Hacia Stlan, at Dinner Gallery at Chelsea. She has also had solo shows at Proto Gomez and Adelphi University. Her work has been included in group shows at Selena's Mountain, My Pet Ram Front Room Gallery, as well as a recent show at RISD's Painting Gallery curated by Angela Dufresne. She's been an artist-in-residence at AIR Birdcliffe, Obris Residency in Portugal and the Netherlands, as well as the Vermont Studio Center. While at Tyler School of Art, she was awarded the Future Faculty Fellowship. Her work has been featured in I Like Your Work, Make Magazine, El Diario, and Art Forum. She will also be included in the forthcoming Art Maze Double Edition. I spoke with Anna about family and identity, a history of artists, painting from within, and much more. Here's our conversation. Yeah, no accent? Not that I know of. My parents are not from Boston originally, so I think I uh, linked up with how they spoke. Right. Um, but my actually, my dad has a really heavy accent. He's um, He's Mexican, so he has a pretty wild accent, but... No Boston accent. <laughs> wild. Thank God. Like Mexican yeah. wild or just wild in well, general? Well, 
just wild because he's he's so it's confusing. He's actually Belgian Mexican. What? The, uh, so wow. he was born in Belgium. Yeah. And uh, he grew up speaking Flemish and French, and then learned Spanish um, when he was, I guess, like little though, like three. Um, so his uh, he and he was a linguist. So he actually met somebody who was kind of trained in um, pinpointing people's accents, and he, and the guy could not figure out where my dad was from. It's that French Mexican curveball. It's a really weird one. Yeah, well, with a little Flemish on top. Wait, what's I is Flemish like the Dutch influence? Yeah, it's the Germanic language and, and actually Belgium is like one of the smallest countries and like half of the parliament like didn't speak to the other half for a certain time because one side was Flemish and the other side was French and the they could not, you know, bridge the divide. Yeah. That was like pretty recent too. That that's like in the last fifteen, twenty years. Well, I don't know if you if you like talking about this stuff, but um I love languages. A, not that I'm a polyglot, but I love languages in general. And um, and I am part Belgian, so there's. Oh that. really? Yeah. Oh wow. I mean, I'm white, so I got. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't make it inevitable. I mean, it's, there's some European <laughs> stuff, you know, like you find out yeah. about yeah. stuff. The two biggest yeah. ones were because the whole you know advent of Twenty Three and Me or whatever. It was um my father saying listen don't tell anyone this but you have, there's a little bit of irish <laughs> <laughs> i'm from boston i welcome you the sheer embarrassment was endearing <laughs> of like you know listen we won't talk about this and then the the native american quotient that a lot of white people have you know what i mean americans was yeah. like something that we didn't know about so or yeah it's, it's interesting when you find out that stuff. But yeah, just a garden variety of like whiteness of, you, you know, Western <laughs> European stuff. But Belgian was one of those. And it was like... Yeah, no, it's rare. Yeah, but I, yeah, the whole French versus, you know, the French side versus the German side. But so the German influence on that French mixed with the Mexican made him a covert accent operator yeah really hard to pin down really really unique well, what about mom what was her oh she is a, a white woman from san francisco <laughs> <You're> so... <laughs> uh, and she yeah uh i think she just has like a very californian or whatever you know the newscaster way of speaking um but she uh, is very fluent in Spanish. She and my dad lived in Mexico for the early part of their marriage, and she's totally obsessed with Mexico, as am I. Um, and she's her Spanish is, is like native. It's really amazing. That's cool. So, wait. So, but when did she first start traveling to Mexico? Like, when did she pick up the language? Well, I mean, I, you know, I don't know if she studied in college because so she was an undergrad and my dad was a grad student. And uh, I don't, I don't actually know for a fact when she started learning it, but she may have just picked it up living there. Um, and then she taught at the University of Guadalajara. Um, so she had to learn. Yeah. It'd be funny if she learned on Hayden Ashbury at like City Lights or something. <laughs> <laughs> the little like learn Spanish yeah. book. <laughs> you know, it's that Nuts. it's that Bay Area accent. Right. Um, yeah. So that's cool. So um 
you know, growing up, you had, you know, I guess that cultural aspect of, you know, growing up multicultural and uh, language going on. So, and apparently art in the family, right? Wasn't your grandfather a painter? Yeah, my grandfather made a living as a portrait painter um, in Guadalajara. And I don't want to say like he was famous by any stretch of the imagination, but I think Guadalajara was like a small enough city um, as far as portraits would go that he was kind of like one of the go-to guys. Um, So he made a living making portraits for wealthy families. That's cool. And may I ask? what the the look if like if you yeah. you know can you describe these portraits i mean they could be anything from yeah. like manet to picasso to frankenthaler <laughs> kidding yeah <laughs> yeah they're frankenthaler-esque portraits of, i want to uh, see that don't you um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're fluid I, I do i'll tell you who doesn't want to see that is the bourgeoisie of Guadalajara. oh um, right that, yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i think they have like a kind of um, academic quality to them, like maybe a little bit of Manet in there where they have kind of like a, like an outline um, quality as well. Um, but, you know, he, he, his, the family portraits that were in pastel have this, be- have this like beautiful softness to them. Um, he did the whole family, all of us really. Um, and then he also did all of the governors of Guadalajara. So actually, if you visit, you can go see like a ton of his paintings at the um, governor's palace. They're like all on display and they're formal. Um, but yeah, they have they definitely have like a very uh, tender likeness, like they're accurate, but they're also very sweet. Um, yeah. And then he also did like hunting scenes. Um, he was a, he was a duck hunter, so he would, uh, do that kind of thing. And then kind of like after Chardin or somebody, he would do like a hung rabbit in the studio. Um, yeah. That's cool. So you had the roadmap, as we say, not everyone likes that, you know? No. And in addition to my grandfather, I have, um, two aunts and one is a sculptor and, uh, she really like just ushered me in. She just took me super seriously at a young age. And yeah, she just was like, this kid's going to be an artist. She's, this is her deal. So I, I feel like so lucky that they fostered all of that stuff for me. That's nice. I was going to say, well, you're screwed. You've got to be an artist for the rest of I think there was like a moment when I was like 18, I was like, does anyone think this is like a good idea? Like, <laughs> Has anyone thought this through, actually? That just goes to show you the grass is always greener. Because everyone who's an artist <laughs> whose parents are like, well, why can't you get a real job? Or why can't you go into law or business? You know what I mean? And you'd be like, damn, why can't you just support me? And then if you get the parents who are like, you're going to be an artist, you're like, wait, are you sure about that? <laughs> yeah, like, have you guys thought about how I'm going to pay rent at all? Yeah, like veterinarian. Doesn't that seem more prudent? Yeah. <laughs> So, well, that's good. You had the green light. I mean, were you always drawing and stuff as a kid? Were you? Yeah, always. Housed always. in creativity. Did you move around a lot? No, we um, stayed in Worcester um, until I went to college. And, you know, I went to Tufts to be kind of close to home. And then I transferred into the museum school. But, yeah, I was in Worcester my whole childhood. And 
Yeah, they they they're really good. You know, they dedicated like a landing outside of my bedroom to be my studio, and like I took tons of art classes, and it was just always part of the deal. It's always who I was. That's so nice. Well, I'm glad that you're doing well. It would have been rough if you weren't. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? They're like, my kid's gonna be an artist. <laughs> it's written on in stone yeah. in the family lore, yeah. and then you like can't paint any. You're I mean, just she, like, well, I yeah. can't. Nobody looks at anything you make. I mean, I, I guess that, that's also part of the trajectory or whatever you want to say. It's like, I always knew this was the deal. I just had to kind of figure out all of the other pieces to make it work. And like, whether or not that happened to me when I was 25, 40, or 80, that was the TBD part, you know? Right. But Well, there's the, let's be honest, there's the art side of things, like making the stuff, and then there's the, yeah. the other side of it, which... Yeah. Some people aren't equipped. I mean, it's a it's its own sort of thing, you know, the song and dance of getting it out there, you know. Exactly. Yeah, and and that it be ready to be out there as well. Right. Yeah, that's a whole process. But so when you were growing up, well, here's the the flip side of the coin. Coin is, um, what's the music situation like? <laughs> um, there was. You know, my, my mother swears, my you know, she, everything I do is golden. So she swears that I was like the best flute player ever, but I literally played flute for one year in fourth grade. So, you know, that remains to be seen. Um, my sister played the cello, which nice. is really like a punishment for a child to like heft a cello back and forth to school. Um, and we both kind of grew out of playing music pretty early on and I, I quit everything like I quit Girl Scouts I quit creative movement I quit theater I was just like I just let me be in the studio let me just draw wow let you me were just make stuff pointed early ruthless ruthless yeah I did I had no other interest I did play sports actually but that's only because of the high school that I went to it was very was sporty like, yeah it was I was also just really small, so they just needed bodies, like, on the field. Like, <laughs> I I probably wasn't very good at all, but... Did you play soccer? You know, I played soccer and lacrosse. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes you just need, you know, stick someone on left defense just to block yeah. people. Just go out there and yeah. get in the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, they needed a sub, so I was there. Well, um, well, that's good. And, you know, it was the... Are we talking, like, small, small? With a, yeah, because isn't like Worcester so kind small. of like a big town? Oh, yeah, maybe so Worcester, you went to a like a small school then within it. Yeah, Worcester was well, like when I went to school there, it was the second largest city in all of New England, okay. and I the so. the public schools. Yeah, it was big. I mean, it still is really big, but um, the public schools were like all of the things of like metal detectors and thousand kid classrooms or, or whatever classes. And uh, my mom taught Spanish at a fancy small private school. So my sister and I went for like next to nothing, which is basically what they could afford. So I was, you know, very lucky to go to uh, a very small private school all the way from like fourth grade up until um, senior year which oh, wow. is the same school nice. the whole time and my mother was my Spanish teacher and you know we commuted together and yeah so I knew those 50 kids for the entire you know yeah. from you were fourth tight. grade through 
puberty. Like I knew everything about those kids. Oh my gosh. Now it seems like you have a good relationship with the family because that sounds like it could be a potential hazardous situation. (laughs) My mom and I are close, but, um, no, the, the rest of my family actually, like we don't really talk. We have a pretty, we, it was a pretty rough, uh, upbringing okay. but my mom and I've always been pretty tight well I mean considering you were going to school with her that might have been the most important dynamic yeah if that yeah, one was sour that would have made school <laughs> tough. no I can imagine like yeah. I mean if my parents taught in my school I think of you know when you're a kid everything I do is embarrassing to my kid you know yeah let alone yeah. being around all day yeah, and taking instruction from them. That's pretty, that's a lot yeah. to ask. In the mother tongue, literally. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I also didn't take Spanish seriously because I was like, whatever, I'm already fluent. Like, right. I don't need to study this. And then she, like, failed me on my first quiz. I was like, oh, yeah. Uh, she had to lay down the gauntlet. Study. You're not yeah. getting a free pass here, kid. This is a, it's right. funny because sometimes I, you know, being in the city and I, you know, um, run the soccer t- uh, soccer club and a lot of the Latino kids in the club m- take Spanish as a foreign language. I'm like, come on, guys. Good for them. <laughs> <laughs> and it's always like, well, we're just getting a little better at it. I was like, well, Mandarin, yeah. if you get the Mandarin <laughs> Spanish English triumvirate, I mean, that is like, that's a powerful linguistic, yeah. you know, triad. I guess maybe it's just a lot to handle. Yeah, but, the, but it, that is like a shield. Jeez, yeah. that's like, you know, 80% of the globe, probably. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Someone speaking one of those in 20 three, years. right? Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Totally. So, um, so you took Spanish. What was your art t- class like there? Um, it was pretty amazing. I, you know, I look back and I'm just like, how did that happen? There was a, a separate art building and, uh, there was even like a wood shop, um, so, like, in high school, there was, you know, I had one teacher, Bob Deck, who was great, and then Winslow Myers was my AP art teacher, um, and it was pretty freeform. I, I feel like we would have some kind of info session on an artist that he would present, and then some kind of vague topic, we would just make some work, um, and it was across the board. I feel like I didn't, I didn't use oil paints until I got to Tufts, but... Um, yeah, it was just like a giant studio building to like mess around. That's a uh, rare for high school, I think. Safe to say. No, yeah, no, really, it's a it's an amazing school, actually. Well, good thing you moved to New York to Brooklyn to have a studio space because oh, actually, I shouldn't <laughs> presume that your studio space isn't ginormous. Well, I have a. I have a studio in Greenpoint, but I'm actually speaking to you from um, upstate, which is like my teensy tiny hasty studio. Um, we over the pandemic, we got a house upstate. Nice. Um, so I have a little space here, but um, I have a I have a decent sized space in Greenpoint. Uh, it's you know space is hard to come by, but I, I figured it, I finally figured out a good spot. Yeah, that's cool. Well, it's, I mean that was a pro move to get a space in nature during COVID. It was, uh, I feel like it looked panicky at the time. Right. <laughs> it was like a real doomsday I think it, kind of attitude. It was panicky. Yeah. Like for good reason, you know? I yeah. Mean. Yeah. A lot of, uh, a lot of people I know who are older and wiser than me, bought places upstate after nine 11. And it, it makes complete sense to me that that was like the decision 
you know, you've got to have somewhere safe to get out of New York. And with rent, you know, it's like you never really feel completely secure in New York if you're just renting. So, yeah, yeah, so we bought this house and it was like in total shambles and we spent most of the pandemic renovating it and uh, it's come a long way. That's nice though. I mean, that's a good project for the time, you know, although I don't know how you got materials. Was it tough logistically? it was pretty fine for the most part. I mean, we're not that far from Home Depot and, you know, up here, everything is just more convenient. Everything's easier to access. So yeah. also nobody was really buying the whole COVID thing, but right. <laughs> so you could just, everything was open. Yeah. They're like, yeah, it's can... fine up here. Not yeah. like you city uh, We don't have it here. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Too much air. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just go outside. You're fine. Um, so that wasn't so much of a problem, um, but it was like a really great project just to, you know, rip out some walls and process like what was happening politically. It was such a nightmare. It was like really great to, yeah, do something cathartic and, and also to make this house better felt really good. Yeah. That's, that's nice to have. Yeah. I can imagine. I was stuck in the city, so I didn't have the (laughs) The whole time escape hatch. Um, Real quick, yeah. to loop back to that earlier question. So you were a one-year phenomenon on the flute, but what was the music yeah. situation like in the house? Like, did you list, was oh. there music in the house all the time? Like, um, I'm, I'm imagining my, my stereotypical, based on the, the family, I could imagine, you know, <laughs> some, some Grateful Dead, some mariachi, like oh. a good combination of Bay oh, Area and that. Mexican music. <laughs> but I'm sure it was probably like you know, Billy Joel or maybe like, you know, 50 oh. cent. <laughs> that, that like all of those descriptions sound so bad. <laughs> like <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to report it was a different kind of bad. Um, my, my dad always listened to lots of jazz, which nice. I find so like frenetic and, and crazy making. Oh, um, and jazz. my mom would, I mean, it's really an acquired taste. My mom would always listen to like Carol King, you know, when she was like vacuuming, that was like her go-to music. Um, and at some point I found their record collection and I realized that they had been total hippies. Like they never quote smoked grass um, and, and like didn't party hard, but they were definitely like bohemians. Um, so they had all of the great records, like the White Album and Jimi Hendrix and Janis nice. Joplin. They didn't go for the doors. That was like too, I don't know. It probably was like too sexy. Like, I don't know what the, the <laughs> adjective is, but it was something yeah. too much. A little um, too much musk. A little Jim, yeah, Jim yeah. Morrison machismo. <laughs> yeah. It's aggressive. Yeah, it was too tempting. Um, too much masculinity, probably. Um, but that I, I uncovered that trove and was like, oh, I just dropped it. Um, and I was sort of shocked and impressed at their stash. Well, those were the times, you know. That's the go- yeah. that's the go-to. I mean, the White Album doesn't get any better, really. Yeah, I mean, I was like, oh shit, this is this is unbelievable. Um, but yeah, then then you know, it sort of set me off on my like path to be like a brooding '90s al- alternative alternative rocker, and that was you know my place in society, and that worked pretty well. Yeah, like Nirvana seems like a good alternative to Carol King. Totally. Yeah, yeah. I saw Nirvana in concert. I was obsessed with the Breeders. Um, oh man. I, good yeah. stuff. 
the Pixies? Really? Oh, I got to the Pixies later in life. I had to go to art school to get to the Pixies. Oh, right, right. Yeah. The art school pass. Got it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's good stuff, that that 90s music, you know. Yeah. And, um, well, so, you know, when you got out, was it a foregone conclusion that you were just going to go to art school? No, like I said, I, I had this like moment of like, um, I need to have like actual life skills or like an education that will produce some kind of income. Oh, so you were serious I about went, that. That wasn't just like a no, I, <laughs> back of the mind thing. It was kind of like, no, I really have to. Yeah. And oh. like I came from like a private school, so it was all about preparation for college and I just followed suit. So, you know, I went to Tufts. I started out at Tufts and... I, I took art classes right away, freshman year, but um, part of me was like, should I be in international relations? Like, I, I thought that would be a, a road for me, yeah. um, mostly because I'm really argumentative. So I thought that would be like a great way to, <laughs> you know, use my skills. Um, Debate team style, and, right? Yeah, yeah. And Politics, like, global you know, issues. Yeah, that seems good. And language, too. I was yeah, into, yeah. you know. Okay, I could do this. Um, and then I just took painting classes. Like, oh no, obviously this is what I'm gonna do. Oh, you you caught the bug in class, oh, or you it like reified it? Yeah, it was just like, oh, this is where I want to be. Yeah, it was just like there's this is like a no brainer. Like this is obviously like my brain is just like firing off in ways that like it's not in any other context. Like this is where I need to be. Yeah, you get that charge. Yeah, it's funny because yeah. sometimes you can know that stuff before you actually know that that's, uh, it's hard to explain it. But like when you get into a studio class and like an intro to painting or something or sculpting and you're like that charge, that energy you get where you want to keep being there. And that's such like a foreign idea in like school to like want to be somewhere after the bell rings. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that's kind of like the big green light, but that's confusing Usually because you're like, wait, this isn't what school's supposed to, you know, I'm not used to this feeling of wanting to stay late or like, you know, be here. And then you figure out there's people who actually have studio spaces and then yeah. it's all over. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, um, I had a really great, uh, freshman year painting professor and now I'm forgetting his last name, but he was a South African painter. His name was Paul. And I remember at one point he was trying to get one of the, students who was not you know this is like a elective for them and he was like you just you need to focus more on what you're doing look at look at Anna she hasn't spoken in hours <laughs> so I was like oh I'm just like a freak over here like obsessed with this thing in front of my face yeah that's yeah I mean you were in the flow state early that's a good sign yeah and teachers can yeah. see that you know like when I have students who come a little early and they just they don't really talk much and they're just working the whole time you know they're in it you know that's like the real yeah. the real stuff you know yeah that's where they belong that's it so was it did you feel like it was the right place for you like you felt good in that in that school considering you know oh tough yeah no, I, I didn't like tough at all no it was like that was so my subtle many... way of asking <laughs> did you hate it there <laughs> I didn't hate it per se, but I think so Tufts and the museum school, it, it used to be a little bit different. Now they've like completely, um, you know, assimilated, yeah. but it used to be separate. And um, 
I transferred into the museum school program. So at first, you know, I was only at Tufts, and then eventually I was like half time museum school, and then fully at the museum school. And just like everything about the museum school made it like made no sense on paper and completely suited everything that I wanted from an art school. Like it was totally free form when I went there. I, I don't know if it's changed, but there was no um, attendance. <laughs> there was no grades. Uh, you just showed up at the end of the semester with your portfolio to two students and two teachers and you presented it and they passed or failed you. That was it. That and makes it, it very, easy. I mean, for some people, you know, they, I can't imagine being 18 and just showing up and having that kind of trust. Right. Cause I, I probably wouldn't have worked it out. Like I probably also would have done what everybody did, which was like drugs on the Fenway. But because I had the structure of Tufts and I, I was so excited to be at art school now, I really learned a lot. I mean, the teachers were super accessible. They were very rigorous. Um, they took everything like very seriously. It was like a, just an amazing conversation and it was, it was amazing. And then it made Tufts look really like uh, conservative and kind of outdated. Like just this like staid academia, yeah. you know? Um, so I, in retrospect, I was like ready to, say goodbye to Chops and just be a full, full time at the museum school. Um, but, you know, I went to Paris my junior year and that was kind of like a interruption in, in the whole thing. And by the time I got back, I was like, this is, I'm ready to just make work. Well, that's a, you really glazed over Paris there. I'm sure that was like yeah. eye opening. I mean, Louvre, yeah. Musée d'Orsay yeah. probably and all that stuff. Right. Paris was, was amazing. I, um, I, I was one of the few Americans who had this like special kind of relationship with the Louvre, the Ecole du Louvre. So I, I took classes at the Louvre, which most French people are like, that's not real. That's no, no non-French people are allowed to take classes there, but Tufts had this program and you snuck in. Um, I snuck in and, and with that, with that, I was granted this unbelievable free museum pass to any museum in all of France. So it didn't matter where I was. I could just go into a museum. You, you um, were able to skip the line? That's That's got to be. I, I feel like maybe, I don't remember that part, but I, I know at um, the Louvre for sure. Yeah. Um, and then like Paris just had so many like little tiny museums, you know, like Delacroix's house is there. You could just like on your lunch break go to all these little unknown spots um and that was just amazing yeah i can't imagine i mean that early and it took me so long to to travel to europe you know out of college and stuff so that must have been really exciting yeah it was it was also a great city to like be on my own because you can just really walk the whole city you know you can just it's so dense you can just it's like a maze you just make it your own yeah Little stroll down the Champs d'Elysees. Yeah. Ah, C'est magnifique. <laughs> C'est incroyable. <laughs> so, and that wasn't your last school trip, right? Because you went to, so you went to Temple for grad school, I think. Is that right? Yes. So yeah, what I made you go Tyler. to Temple? Or Tyler? Well, sorry. it's funny. I, I, um, I was like a lost soul after 
after undergrad, I was like so confused about what what to do and how to be an artist. And I, I, the thing about the museum school is it's really wonderful and this like kind of free form thing, but it's not great at uh, pointing you in, or it wasn't great for me and like pointing me in the right direction on what to do next. Or I also wasn't that good at figuring out how to ask for that kind of assistance. So who knows? But I found myself kind of without a community after I graduated and looking to other people like, how do you be an artist? Like, what is this thing now? What do I do? Um, Yeah. And I just applied to a bunch of schools and Tyler gave me this like amazing package. They gave me a really great fellowship. I was a future faculty fellowship and, you know, it was pretty close to Boston, so I, I, but also I needed to leave Boston. Like I was ready. Boston is just like a big town full of sports fans. Um, <laughs> so I was really ready to leave. I was going to ask how you feel about Boston because, you know, <laughs> I've I haven't spent that much time in Boston, but it it does feel very Bostony. It's just like so towny, and I'm from Worcester, which is even more towny. So. Um, I know what I'm talking about here. Yeah, you were in the deep end of the, the Boston pool. Yeah, it's very charming. And, you know, culturally, there's a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, the museums are amazing. Being across from the Gardner and the Museum of Fine Arts was fantastic. I mean, ICA, like right? amazing resources. Yeah, and yeah, the, the, and the, the, I love that podcast on the Gardner, on the heist. Oh, yeah. It's so cool. The documentary is really great, too. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, And then, you know, Harvard, like the Fog is gorgeous museum. It's such like a little gem. Like not everybody gets there. Um, If you're there long enough, you will. So there's there's a lot of yeah, there's like a lot of culture there. But after a while, it's just this. I mean, so many people said to me, what do you think you're going to be an artist? Like, that was just, like, what everyone would say. Like, like what What do you think's going to happen? You're just going to be an artist? I'm like, no, I already am an artist. <laughs> like, but that's not the problem. Like, it's the other parts. Um, but the art scene there is just different, and I never figured it out. So right. I, I, I would be interested to hear what people who are there, like, making it work have to say. But I, I really didn't see a place for me there so you cash in your chips on one provincial town and you went to another yeah exactly <laughs> i was like i love sports Kidding, i don't um i love a rabbit yeah, it's so not I, just sports it's like a rabid fan base you know what i mean it's so angry it's so aggressively sports focused like either way whoever wins or loses there's going to be a fight yeah in it's Boston. just That's so like piss and vinegar i remember one yeah. time visiting boston with my extended family and I, I forget what the parameters were, but we were walking back to our hotel when like Fenway let out. Oh God, poor you. And it was like crossing a street. It was, you know, you know, it was just insane. Yeah. Like it yeah. was that feeling of like mob mentality of wanting to just avoid humans at all costs was not comfortable. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's like red Rover or something. You're like, get me out of here. Yeah. It's dangerous. Yeah, I guess when you're from the place, it's a little less intimidating. Because I, I grew up in Pittsburgh, and there's a sports fan base there, but it just didn't feel as quite as toxic as 
Boston felt like. Like, maybe a fight or two, but not like, you know, more fights than not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, You're, yeah. It's, it is what it is. It's oh, wait. Just... I, I, did you hear that? Uh, it's the sound of like hate ma- emails coming in about <laughs> Boston's awesome. What are you talking about? I know it's great. And that's yeah. one night of a walk or what? I love Boston. It was great. <laughs> I'm from there. I can say it. I mean, I, no, yeah, Pittsburgh's I, just as provincial and, you know, sure. bonkers. But, you know, right. we got the Warhol. So, you know. Right. Right. There's always yeah. the perks of, of the provincial towns and the good food and knowing the ins and outs of it. But so did you like yeah. grad school? Was it good? No, I hated grad school. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I had a really hard time. It was, uh, it was a bad time for me. Like personally, I was just dealing with so much like family fallout stuff. And, and I didn't know like a lot of what was going on in my like personal life. And, and, in retrospect, I, I really needed help, but I went to Tyler, which was this, like, at the time, and again, I think it's changed. I think it's softened a lot, but at the time, it was, like, this really rigorous kind of, like, you know, we're going to shred you, and then you're going to build yourself up from the pile of ashes, and um, it did not work on me. Like, it just it didn't fly. What years were um, you there? Um, I was there 2003 to five. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So I went, I fled. I was like, I gotta get out of here. I'm going to like either, I mean, I feel like my true Bostonian came out and I was like, all right, if you guys want to fight, I'm going to, I'm ready to fight. But (laughs) that wasn't actually what I needed or what I wanted. Um, and if, it were now, I think a teacher may have like actually just been like, Hey, do you need a hand or like, do you need some help? And, and I would have said, yes, I, I really do. Yeah. Um, but it was a different time. And the idea behind what you were supposed to get from that experience, uh, it, it didn't, it, it didn't work with me at yeah, all. No, it, I don't think it worked for a lot. Isn't it funny though how the pendulum has really swung? It, I feel like you might have been right at the end of that wave of like the the Marines style education system of where you just get flamed and then you have yeah, to like, I, you know you basically it's like hazing where you just get I mean it's not that bad. Totally. But, but you know you get you get run through the ringer and you got to like yeah. toughen up. The, the attitude of like, well, you got to toughen up or you're not going to make it out there, which there is yeah. a little bit of validity to that. But I don't think it's the most encouraging and healthy environment for, you know, mental health and stuff and like mental. Like, yeah, no one talked about that stuff back then. It was just like you're <laughs> I'm not going to you're just not tough enough. You know what I mean? Like you got to toughen up. You got to work harder, be stronger, deal with it, you know, and that's I mean, thankfully. Although one wonders when you do come through a system like that, does it go too far the other direction? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm glad to hear that I was at the end of it. I, I have always been so confused and, and jealous of the people who leave their grad schools and are like, I have the best friends from that experience. I have such wonderful, I love my grad school. Like I'm always like, what, where, where was I? <laughs> um, but also I just don't understand why they like invite you here and then like tell you all of your ideas are total garbage. Like this makes no sense to me. Like you, you're the one who let me in. So 
like let's work with what I got. Like you don't have it doesn't have to be like scorched earth. Like we could at least like break down some of the misconceptions of of which there are several and like, you know, but the that was work I ended up having to do kind of on my own afterwards. Yeah. Um recovery. And it Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. Self recovery. You know, I think yeah. I have the answer to that though. I think I know why it's like that. One is it's it's like half the marine mentality of where you could take any average person, you put them through boot camp, and they're going to be stronger. They're going to be more prepared. It's kind of like, you know, they're they're going to have gone through that trauma basically, and it's like mm-hmm. you know picking a scat like you you know you're gonna sort of heal and get stronger from it. I mean, I'm not saying this is right. I'm saying I think that's sort of the mentality. And the other side of it is that. If you go to schools that were pretty, you know, like art schools, you have a lot of strong personalities of professors who would sort of fight each other or have very strict ideologies of what is valid or what's not valid up until a certain point. Then I think at a certain point people were like, it's okay, we're all, all voices are accepted. We, we can, you know, everyone's point is valid. Let's just make it stronger. Back then it was kind of like, this isn't interesting. You know, like you would just hear that. <laughs> My best friend whose studio was with me. <laughs> this is a great story. Well, it's not great, but he was, <laughs> I was listening to the crit because it was a studio next to mine. And it was a professor who's a very well-known professor at the school. Who's like the, you know, he was Mr. Alpha. And um, he, he's like, mm, he gets in the studio and he's like, he's just, and you know, you can't help but eavesdrop because there's no roof or whatever. And like it, there's silence for a while, and and my friend was like, "Oh yeah, this is kind of what I'm working on," blah blah, and it's quiet, and he's like, mm. "Just like that real awkward silence of like, I'm gonna try to think of something to say," and then he goes, "The best line," he goes, "Well, it's not that it's not interesting; it's just <laughs> not interesting." Oh, <laughs> oh, brutal, but Wait. that kind of like I feel like you probably wouldn't hear that in a crit these days. You know what I mean? Really? Yeah. I think it's probably a little softer than that. Softer. Yeah. I I do. I do worry about the, the, you know, current, uh, upcoming generations that they are so sensitive and, and me, and there has to be like a happy medium between like the, you know, ringer that we were put through and then this like really kid glove treatment. Cause you have to be, I think you just have to be so critical to yourself all the time in the studio and you have to learn and like, you know, that kind of like uh, hazing or whatever you want to say in grad school is also antithetical to that as well. Like you can't, you can't see your work for what it is. If you have all of these kinds of like defensive mechanisms, like blocking you from like your actual, what what you actually are seeing. Um, but like you have to teach yourself in some way to uh, see the work for what it needs to be or like what, what moves you have to make next to make it. And I, I don't mean to say better because I know it's like a kind of useless like term, but, but that's the truth. Like the work has to be growing and changing and um, you have to always be interacting with it in a new yeah. way. Yeah. And if you can't command like new stuff and, you're just going to run out of energy. You're not going to have anything to put forward. Yeah. It's it's funny. I think, I mean, because I'm a teacher, I think about that sometimes. And and I feel like, you know, I went through a grad program that was pretty rigorous. You know, there was some pretty harsh stuff. 
but I feel like I came out, and yeah, it took me a little bit to sort of the, for the dust to settle. But I came out making work, and I feel like it it did kind of make me stronger because I had to, yeah. you know, I had to answer to a lot of, you know, tough questions that weren't always based in sort of like a supportive, you know, well, let's make your work better. Like, well, maybe if you did right. this, it was more like, well, I don't like, how am I supposed to get into this? Like, this doesn't right. speak to me. And sometimes it, that kind of critique can be good in a way because it challenges you know, you to be able to answer for it. I think the people who can get through it, they come out stronger, but the, mm-hmm. the bad part of it is there's probably a lot of great, potential great artists who just come out of it and they're like, well, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, this yeah. just ruins it for them. Yeah. So I don't know what's better. And then now it probably swings in the other direction to where it's just like, you know, there's like criticism, like there's no real right. harsh criticism. You know, yeah. like it's very rare these days. And if someone does write something... Like, if you know art critics and you've read anything in the past couple of days, I won't mention names, but there's been an article <laughs> out that people are flipping out about, and it's like ridiculous. Yeah. You know, it's it's just yeah, funny. It, it is pretty funny, and also, um, like, yeah, like what's the point of it all if it's all good? I mean, we can't we can't constantly be patting each other on the back all the time, right? Um, there has to be a limit to how much good work there is, especially considering how many artists there are. We don't need that much art. Like, let's just minimize a little bit here. Like, <laughs> right. It's okay. Yeah. We don't need all of this. Weed out a little <laughs> bit of the... <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's so funny, too, because it's like, it's so transparent because we feel like response to things these days is just that kind of like informative not really super positive, just kind of like, oh, here's a show, blah, blah, blah. And then if there's always like the once in a blue moon negative thing that comes out, but it's like patently negative, like this is terrible, this is ruining <laughs> art, instead of just like a good valid critique of whether this is, yeah, you know, like a I nuanced mean, I think, thing. Yeah, it was not nuanced. It was like, I, I mean, I, I think we're talking about that. Oh, yeah, we are. There's, there's yeah. nothing going okay. on in criticism. So. Right. Yeah, but also it was just like such he- like shocking headlines, yeah. like, you know, I feel like that was part of it. It was just like Jerry really wanted to make like a splash and like he did, but also that work is just like, yeah, it really isn't that exciting or intriguing and it's Wait. okay that that's not doing anything. Wait, who's Jerry? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. All right. So even, I'm not even going to say his last name. He's like Trump. You don't even have to say his last name. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, so, so in school, what was your work like in grad school? You hated it, but what was, what were you making? So I was, um, I was like really reactive and I made like the most uptight photorealist painting, like super tight miniature, um, paintings of like still lives of like nail polish and kind of like all of my, um, like personal, you know, affects, like just like really like super tiny, perfect. Like you would think it was, you know, off the wall, just an yeah. actual replica. Um, and then I, the, the second year when I went to Rome, I did soften um, in that I started making more figurative work and it was like people in the streets of Rome, like basically looking at, at um, these ruins, um, it, you know, experiencing the city. Uh, and then I did like my thesis show was like all these tiny miniatures on um panel and then like burlap glued to panel of like the Tuscan landscape. Mm-hmm. And I, I mostly have been doing landscape since then, but there was 
some still life in there as well. Was the uh, the technical stuff at the beginning kind of a defense mechanism? Totally. I did yeah, that. I mean, it I was... made defensive paintings. Did you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And mine were abstract, um, so it was even harder to, to do that. You know what I mean? Because I, well, it wasn't yeah. based on proficiency. It was based on, like, work ethic. Right. You know, like, you may hate this, <laughs> but you can't say I'm lazy. Right. <laughs> that's, like, that's the total like, blue-collar really thing. That's a really good tactic. Yeah, it was blue-collar. It's like, look, you might hate yeah. what I'm doing, and a lot of people did, but it's like, you can't say that I'm not working hard. So Yeah, that's yeah. powerful. <laughs> well, it didn't seem to work that well. People still hated my work. <laughs> Not so everyone. That, you still you still learn a lot from when people hate your work, though. Oh, it's definitely. Like a, a really an awesome stance to come out of. <laughs> yeah, I think you know. I think if you're working hard, I try to tell my students, like you know, I made in undergrad, I made terrible work for a while. You know, it's like you got to exercise oh, yeah. the demons. You got to fail. You got to just try stuff. And, you know, doesn't yeah. work. Throw it. Throw it against the wall. See what sticks, and then move on. Yeah. You know? And like if you're trying yeah. to. Um, you know, polish everything out. It's just, you know, you're, you're making work for other people basically. <laughs> but that's the thing. Like after it took me a while after school to, to get over that defense mechanism. Although fortunately I went to Skowhegan right after and at Skowhegan, it was a total opposite of grad school. Everyone's like, yeah, man, we're all just here making work. Oh, Let's go hang amazing. out. You know? So I was like, yeah. what the hell is going on here? This is like some sort of, hippie colony where everyone it's like the teachers weren't teachers they were fellow art or they were i forget what they called them but it wasn't teachers it was like participants or something you know right. it was like very democratic and super great and amazing teachers so it was that was kind of a good yin to the yin, yeah you know yeah there was trust people trusted that you were you know committed to the work and no one had to kind of tell you one way or the other how to get there so you right. could be free to make what you needed to make. That Definitely. was the museum school model. That was it. They were just were like, you're, you're here to make work. And if you're serious, you're, you're going to do it. And if not, they're kind of like, that's, you know, that's on you. Right. Like, how are you going to, there's other people out there working their butt off like 150%. Yeah. If you're phoning it in, you know, forget it. I mean, yeah, sure. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Good luck to you. Yeah. So how long did it take after, what well, well, A, what was the plan when you got out of school and B, how long did it take to sort of hit a groove? Yeah. I w so I, I had to like a, a gap, like six months or something to kind of figure out and collect my people and figure out how, figure out how to land in New York. And then, you know, I got to New York with a couple of friends and, um, we, we lived in Harlem at first. And, and that was, I think in retrospect, kind of like a, a, stalling period where um you know it was like the how like the job and the studio and like the you know all the stuff uh figuring that that part out was tricky and then eventually I think once I got to Brooklyn a, a lot of it made more sense like everything kind of fell into place like the studio just brought so many more other artists and so suddenly like going to art shows made so much more sense I was like some interloper in someone else's world. No, this is like my world. Yeah. And then, yeah, just sort of bit by bit, you just like build your, your community. And then it was just, now it's just everything I do. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's funny yeah. too, how, you know, a neighborhood and an area can change things. Like when in late nineties, when I moved first moved to New York, it was Astoria, which I love Astoria, but you know, it wasn't really 
gangbusters as far as like fellow artists and studios. There was good coffee yeah. and stuff and good treats, but yeah. you know, it wasn't until I moved to like South Williamsburg that I felt like, oh, okay, yeah. there's some people around. Like you feel the energy of it, even if you're mm-hmm. not doing studio visits every day. You know, you're just like, you see yeah. people. You know, it feels like, oh, okay, I'm in the right spot. Yeah, yeah. You just eventually kind of work your way into it, and then everything makes more sense once you see just like how much of the hive is all operating at the same capacity and you know i never i never really had a hard time um work ethic wise like i'm I'm also you know working class worcesterite like i always put in the hours that's never been an issue but um having like the conversation and and you know when i first got to bushwick it was like everybody was making like abstract geometrical paintings and I was like the only person I felt like not, you know, I was, I was still doing like um, landscape kind of figurative based stuff. And it just seemed like so much of this geometric abstraction and it takes a minute to kind of get your, your, the bigger picture of like who else is talking about what you're talking about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because then you realize like as you're, community of people grows you realize oh actually everything's being made right now and there's this idea that zombie formalism or whatever like whatever you know the neo figuration or whatever it is like oh this is what's going on right now but then you're like wait this you start walking around people's studios and like no everyone's doing everything it's just yeah you know things have a moment of where a few things get covered and it feels like um you know, something bigger than it is really. Yeah. It just, it seems like for a minute that was kind of all that was showing. And then quickly thereafter that changed or my perception changed or I learned more or whatever it was. But, um, I'm sure a lot of abstract painters right now are like, it's all just figuration. Yep. Um, but they might not be wrong. So uh, it's, it ebbs and flows. Enough. I've been yeah. tremendously gifted at always doing the thing that's not in vogue. (laughs) (laughs) But that means you're just anticipating the next change. Right. You're just ahead of the curve. I'm just reacting five years. No, but it's funny because, (laughs) you know, sometimes you'll move, you know, from landscape to figuration or, you know, some abstraction, whatever. And, you know, the work takes you where the work takes you. You know what I mean? Yeah. You you kind of follow that stuff and, you know, whatever's going on elsewhere, whatever seems like there's energy around is you can't really change that. You know, you just have to do you. Yeah. And it's, it's really just a process because you, you still have to make it even if you never look at it again, or you just whatever, cut it out of the stretcher bars. Like you still have to make the thing to get it through your system so that you can make the next thing. So, you know, I, I just try and play the odds. I just try and make it a lot a lot of paintings. That's my goal. <laughs> just make a bunch of them and one or two will be pretty decent. That's what I'm going for these days. <laughs> <laughs> well, this the I don't know exactly when you started a bit, but the work that's sort of about this sort of, you know, feeling um in between culturally, ethnically yeah. is really interesting. I mean, I live in a family of, you know, a person who I'm partners with a person who lives that way who's ethnically one from one place but grew up here and there's you never this idea of never really feeling at home somewhere is a really uh, I don't know how to describe it but I 
I can only imagine it's a, a very specific feeling, you know? Yeah, I, I think so. And yet I think it's um, a feeling many people are comfortable expressing and, and maybe that's also like a function of living in New York where um, so many, many of us are second generation immigrants and, um, you know, we're all Heinz 57 or whatever. And like, I think this kind of like loss of culture is, is like a big part of it because, you know, we're, this, the country we live in is going through a crisis of, of like so many different dimensions and it seems like part of that is like a loss of culture like there's there's so little keeping Americans uh, healthy with their traditions and, and their like norms it's so focused on shopping and um, you know buying bigger and it doesn't have any kinds of like roots and, and it does you know it can go into the route of spirituality as well, but, but it also just doesn't have like a big, like a history, like a culture of history. Um, and not having that, I think is, is part of this like displacement. Like, um, my father being from Mexico, even though by way of Belgium, but my, um, my family being rooted in Mexico, they always just had so many more kind of like layers of culture and like, you know, it's a place where to date, if you stand still, a guy on a bicycle will bring bread over with a bell and he'll ring a bell and that you'll know what kind of bread he has by the bell that he's ringing or like the tamales or, or whatever, you know, that will cruise through the neighborhood and it'll come to you. And um, this is sort of like a totally different approach to a way of living that like we don't, we don't have this kind of like connection and that's like history on like a daily, like, you know, routine level. Um, and I think that's something that's missing and and something that I've always kind of like longed for and, and building like a landscape that is, yeah, talking or like encapsulating this like, or like admitting, I guess is more the word, like admitting this kind of like feeling of in between two places or in between no place. Um, it's just, it's been really, it's just been a really interesting place to explore. Yeah. It's, it's funny um, because that is like a very, like if you have one parent who's from one place and another who's from another and you, or you, you're ethnically from, let's say, you know, Argentina and then you move when you're four and you grow up in, in New York or America, it's a, it's a very traceable, you know, relationship that you're talking about and I think you're are you saying that basically like America has this like loss of culture in a way because everything is like diluted or it's not you know what I mean is that is that kind of like what you're yeah I I mean I think so I think I think there was a time when like even in New York you could go to like the German part of town like on the upper east side and and there would be like a, a German festival you know that would happen um, you would partake in that uh, experience. And, and for those families, that was the part of their roots. But like, even still that, that in some way, like percolates into American life where it becomes like the German American version of it. But so much of that has become homogenized, maybe through people moving around the country and maybe through, you know, strip malls and just commercialism. Like you can't tell the difference between so many American towns, like regionalism 
is is not so specific here. Right. Well, um, so so I am an embodiment of what you're talking about because I'm so mixed that I have no culture really. Right. So yeah, that's I have that's FOMO when it comes to you know like I'm married to a woman who is from a place where everyone is ethnically that place pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I right. always feel like oh it must be so nice, but then so many people come to America, come to New York, and think. Oh, there's something beautiful about the fact that not everyone here is like rah rah I'm from this place and that it's like a melting pot of people and in a way there's something beautiful about when like people in New York don't care where you're from yeah yeah <laughs> like my sure. like teenagers like I have a teenager so when they're in school like the, the all the friends are from all like there's so many mixed people that it's kind of cool because no one cares they're just like right you're just no one even talks about it really you know what I mean and there's a real beauty to that because it's almost like you you gain in what you gain you lose you lose some of that direct relationship to a very specific cultural existence but you also gain this new sort of fabric of of a culture that is made up of like you know mixing to where it's not singular anymore you know what I mean so it's it's kind of It's kind of cool in a way. I mean, it has its ups and downs. I think all of it does, you know. Like, Germans during World War II were very tied to a specific <laughs> way of being, which <laughs> was maybe not a good ideology of collectivism. You know what I mean? So, right. it, it, you know, sometimes these things are good. Sometimes they can be bad. Right. That's not the parade that we want to be celebrating. No, no. Um, I like the Puerto no. Rican Day Parade. I mean, the Puerto Ricans <laughs> are very in touch. With, <laughs> they're holding yeah. it together when it right. comes to... A collectivism in New York City. Exactly. <laughs> I'm always impressed. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's all fair, and I do, I do think that you know there is, uh, like, like there's, I mean, there's also a lot of pride in America for being American in this way that, of course, is toxic and scary. But like, I am so proud to be a New Yorker simply because it is a place where you can be anything and yeah. anyone, and no one's gonna bother you, and, and it's in the safest way. We're like you can have three heads and purple hair and literally someone's just going to be like, I like those shoes. Like it doesn't matter at all um, because there's at least 25 of everything there. Um, And I I think that's kind of like why I belong there as well. But um, as far as like the, the idea of like belonging, like I think, yeah, maybe it is like a lost cause. And I'm kind of really into that too. Like, like I've been thinking of the work as kind of like a like a voyage or um, a journey, like in search of belonging. And someone recently asked me, like, "Do you find that belonging?" And I was like, "No, of course not. <laughs> You're not going to like find it through my work. Like, no, I'm not. I'm not. There's no conclusion, um, and there's not necessarily solace either. Like, it's it's not um, measured in those terms, but rather this is the experience of." Uh, what the painting is about because of course for me I I belong to painting and painting belongs to me and like that's kind of the short and long of it right this is where I belong well I would I would this might be a tangent but I would think that it's kind of a nice metaphor that in because we're talking a lot about like you your ideas about place relationship family and all that and we're not really specifically talking about like oh in that painting behind you there's a circle you know what i mean we're we're talking about this 
the sort of ingredients of what you're then bringing into a visual medium. But what's interesting is anytime you, you parse out ideas and thoughts like anything like this or anything in general into a painting or a visual piece of art, it's never defined really. You know, it's right. there's gray area and that's kind of a beautiful, beautiful resonance to, you know, this idea that there is a gray, there's a blurring of lines of like place, culture, ownership of a specific existence, you know what I mean? And then mm-hmm. the surroundings, what shapes you, it's kind of like nature, nurture, you know, mm-hmm. and making images is such a beautiful way to explore that phenomenon because you don't have to, it's not like you're writing an essay. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So you can bring in even subconscious imagery or relationships to landscapes and different places. And you could, you know, you could throw in a Belgian flower into a rock (laughs) formation from when you were growing up. And then it talks in a way that's not literal. Like people may not know that, but it has this sort of like relationship to, you in a way but it's not defined black and white which is kind of great yeah no i think it's not a question i guess it's just a ramble (laughs) no it's it's right on point though i think that's uh exactly where i want to be is like uh you know taking from all kind of art all parts of my experience as, as a person and um using imagery from all all areas and yeah in a way kind of smushing them together but also trying it to of course, design and be poetic about it. But ultimately, a lot of those connections don't need to make sense. And, and the more sense I try and make of them, the, the worse it is. Like, it's so much better often if it's just this almost random um, but well-placed uh, symbol. Yeah. Yeah, I can't help but think of, like, a Nirvana song. You know, with like the lyrics, <laughs> which are sometimes they feel heavy, you know, but then mm-hmm. there's a certain level of abstraction to it. And the music sometimes has like a positive, but then a real heavy side to it, too. You know, it's like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's something nice about exploring these kind of ideas that aren't necessarily there's they're not no matter what people think, they're not black and white. Nothing in life is black and white. We we think we know things. You know what I mean? There's always a. blurred edge to existence and um you know whether it's i think music does it really well because it resonates Mm -hmm. sonically within you and the words are and same thing with art like visual art it's just a a play a great place a sandbox to like play out these ideas of you know all this stuff that we're thinking about yeah it's a place for associations to be made yeah and ideally if other people are looking at your work and, you know, they go over and they read the press release or they read the statement or, or a review and then they think about this stuff in a different way that they might not have ever thought about it and with the visual element, you know, which is really cool yeah. because in a way that's educational too because you're seeing all these ideas that are within your mind, like this is Anna's mind and her mm-hmm. existence and her history projected into this sort of like invented world, you know. Yeah, it feels like a yeah, it's this other form of communication. So that I don't need to be present and and yet I'm already there. Yeah, and it's not didactic. It's kind of like well, ideally most of us make work that we have a generative idea, but then it feeds back into us like it it you know, it gives us more ideas or it, it teaches us yeah. something as well, which is the best kind of communication, I think, you know. 
Yeah, and definitely, you know, I think that's really the goal in the studio is just to always be making work that leads you to the next work. That and seeing how much coffee you can drink in one day. (laughs) 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 And and also keeping a steady hand after all that coffee. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I wish wish it still had that effect. (laughs) As you, as it's nighttime and I'm drinking another coffee. Oh, no. <laughs> That's a commitment. Hey, it's, you know, <laughs> sometimes it comes to that, the late night yeah. coffees. Yeah. Um. So what are you working on now? Like, you have a show up now. I'm sorry? Do You You have a show up now, don't you? Well, my show just ended oh, just at ended. Dinner Gallery. Yeah, it closed on Saturday. Um. And it was a wonderful, wonderful run. Um, so that has just concluded. Um, so I'm getting ready for some more stuff on the horizon. Do you take the uh, little break? We, do you take the mini um, break or do you go right into it? I go right into it. I actually started work before they left the studio because I just didn't want to have like the Empty white nest. walls. Yeah, yeah. Mm-mm. And that's depressing. Not, not into it. I need... I need, I also like to have at least two or three going at the same time. Um, so that once one is done, I don't need to like start from zero. There's always some momentum going. Um, so no, I'm, I I got some stuff cooking now. Um, and I'm going to be in a group show this summer at Monroe and I'm going to be on, uh, plat- the we- Huxley Parlor is going to be doing something new on their website and they'll be putting me up there. Um, so I'm making some work for that right now and we'll see what else happens. Um, last question. Favorite restaurant in Brooklyn? Oh, man. You weren't expecting that one, right? Oh, that's a really hard question. Um Favorite well, it could restaurant. be it could be of late. It doesn't have to be like all time. No pressure. All right. Well, like, what's your go-to? Um, actually, you know what, my go-to right now, and you might be into this, is M Noodle Shop. Do you ever oh, get that? Yeah. Well, I used to live right by M over on Grand Street, so yeah. I would get there yeah. all the time. I only did Noodle Shop once or twice. I haven't really gone is- deep. It's excellent. It's like definitely my go-to. Um, Did you like M Shanghai, studio. like the OG one? This is the one right across from Crest, right? Yeah. Well, that's the noodle shop, but the the, the original one was just M Shanghai. It was on Grand Street oh, in Waynesburg. No, I guess I didn't know that one. I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because M's been there kind of a long time. That M. Up. So when I moved to Grand Street in Waynesburg, there was only. The Stinger Bar and Iona. Oh, Iona, yeah. Those were the only two spots. Everything else was just like Deadwood. And then uh, Food Swings opened, which was a vegan fast food joint, which was amazing. Because I've been vegetarian (laughs) for a long time. Wow. And and then that closed. But now it's all, I mean, you know. But have you eaten at Birds of a Feather? No, and we've been talking about going. Is it excellent? Yeah, it's legit. Okay. It's like real deal. Okay, uh, I will check it out. Also, have you been to Sean, X apostrophe I-A-N? Sean Famous Foods? Oof, yeah. That place is the bomb. Yeah, that's a chain, right? They have a bunch of those, I think. 
The, a couple of them closed, actually. So I think there's only one or two now. There's one in the city and then the one in Greenpoint. There's one in Long Island City. New one. It's huge. Oh, wow. All right. Right by PS1. Well, oh. Everyone's like, what the? They're just talking about New York <laughs> what, City where? food places. So. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, this is important to us people. Oh, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But yeah, birds of a feather is legit like Chinese okay. food. Like it's That's not exciting. your standard, you know greasy spoon Chinese joint oh Chinese food has had a comeback for sure yeah it's like you can you can get real stuff yeah which is pretty cool yeah I mean it's like that yeah Yeah, and and I think you know that it's like the second wave like I remember when Japanese restaurants started getting really popular and it was just like all sushi places I was like you know there's a lot more food in Japan than sushi (laughs) (laughs) and now you can get like legit like home style food and stuff you know that you would oh, yeah. never see like 10 years ago it's pretty cool yeah uh have you been to rule of thirds that oh, place yeah. is oh yeah fantastic oh my god it's really good yeah brooklyn is really blessed <laughs> yeah i know that's the thing that's the siren that keeps me here you know oh the, yeah that in the public school si- or you know the school system yeah. but i mean the food is so good like when you go out oh. of the city it's it's honestly, it's just hard because there's not the options, you know? No, no. I mean, we're here upstate and you have to plan like days in advance if you want to eat at a restaurant. I mean, we're 30 minutes from Hudson and mm-hmm. a lot of the restaurants close at 8 p.m. Oh, yeah. They're not staying up late. That's a weird Bizarre. thing, too. Like when you go to a Dunkin' Donuts at 7 and it's closed, you're like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As a Bostoner, you know that. <laughs> I mean, that yeah, should be oh, like 24 seven. That's just an IV. <laughs> um, well, listen, it was great to, to meet and to talk and a uh, big fan yeah. of the work. So thanks so much thank for you. doing it. And yeah, people should follow you on Instagram. Yeah, Instagram is the best way. I have a website, but if you want to keep current um, on the Instagram and yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was yeah, lovely no, meeting with you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Sound and Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find out more about the podcast by checking it out online, soundandvisionpodcast.com. And on Instagram, you can find images at Podcast. Do a favor, if you're a fan of the podcast and you would like to support it, there are two great ways you could do it. One is to leave a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcast. And number two is getting the Why I Make Art official book of the Sound Vision podcast. You can get it anywhere, anywhere you get books. And the other way you can support it is telling a friend about it. But many thanks for all your support for Golden Artist Colors, Fulcrum Coffee Roasters, New York Studio School, and many thanks to Anna for taking the time. Got some great podcast coming up with some really great painters, sculptors, all sorts of artists, so stay tuned.